To fear God is to have an attitude of deep respect combined with a sense of wonder inspired by who God is and what he's done and frankly, what he could do if he wanted to do. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his current series with part 10 of Not Even One. Think about fear for a moment. There's plenty to be afraid of in this world. In fact, there are entire industries that make a profit off of people's fear. But is there such a thing as appropriate, even good fear? According to Scripture, there is. It's referred to as the fear of the Lord. And that's what Tom Pennington will examine today as we close our series in Romans chapter 3. You'll discover a few outcomes of an improper fear of the Lord and how to respond to the only one who is able to save, restore, and redeem your heart. Let's join Tom now with today's message on The Word Unleashed. Think for a moment about a specific sin that you struggle with. A specific sin. I can promise you this, there are certain people before whom and certain circumstances in which you would never commit that sin. You may think, well, you know, I don't have much control over that sin. The truth is you do because there are certain people and certain circumstances where you would never commit that sin. Perhaps it's before your spouse or in front of your parents. Or maybe it's with your peers or perhaps it's with, with spiritual leaders in your life. Maybe you would never commit that sin if I'm around. Now why? Why would you never consider committing your sin in the presence of that person? It's because you fear. You fear what would happen if that sin were exposed in that situation. But God always knows. And yet we still sin. Why? Because either we don't really believe that God sees or we don't really fear the God who sees. So a failure to fear God is the foundation of our depravity. But what exactly is the fear of God? What does that mean? Well, when Scripture speaks of the fear of God or the fear of the Lord, it's used in one of three ways. Let me give them to you briefly. First of all, it is used of true believers and the true worship of God. Sometimes, often in fact, when the Bible speaks about one who fears the Lord or those who fear the Lord, it's a description of all of those who have genuinely come to believe in the true God and to worship him. (coughs) It's shorthand for believer. Genuine believers fear God. That's why in Proverbs 9.10, we read, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You don't, even, you don't even begin a relationship with God apart from the fear of God. Psalm 31.19 goes, goes on to say that you can describe believers as those who fear God. Psalm 31, 19, how great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you. If you take refuge in God, in New Testament terms, if you take refuge in Jesus Christ, then you fear God. 
And if you fear God, you take refuge. Psalm 103, 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, on true believers. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and a book of remembrance was written before God for those who fear the Lord, who esteem his name. It's shorthand for true believers. Even in the New Testament, this is true. Revelation 19, verse 5, a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, that is his slaves, his doulos, you who fear him, both small and great. So scripture often uses the expression, those who fear the Lord, simply to identify those who have come to truly believe in the true God and to worship him. Let me put it to you very bluntly. If you don't fear God, you are not a true believer. You are not a Christian. The fear of the Lord is used secondly in scripture of reverence and awe for God. Reverence and awe. Now, we throw these words around, so let me give you a definition, just so we're clear. Webster's defines reverence as an attitude of deep respect tinged with awe, mixed with awe. So what's awe? Well, awe is an emotion variously combining dread, veneration, and wonder that is inspired by authority or by the sacred or by the sublime. It's dread, it's, it's, there's a fear mixed in with it, as well as wonder, and you're overwhelmed by the reality of this. This is how we're to respond to God. And, and sometimes when Scripture uses this expression, the fear of the Lord, it's talking about reverence and awe of the one true God. Let me give you a couple of examples. Deuteronomy 28, 58. Moses writes, you must be careful to observe all the words of this law which are written in this book to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God. Fear him because of his awesome character. Be awed by God. Be filled with wonder as well as with legitimate fear. Psalm 33, 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. And then the psalmist explains, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Listen, to fear God means you literally not only respect him, but you are, you are taken away with wonder, born away with wonder and fascination and veneration and adoration of his greatness. You're overwhelmed by God. Micah 2.5 speaks of Levi and says, Levi feared me, and then he explains, and stood in awe of my name. He, he was awed by what's true about me. This is what it means to fear God. It means to truly be moved in your heart and in your thoughts and in your spirit by the greatness of God. To fear God is to have an attitude of deep respect combined with a sense of wonder inspired by who God is and what he's done and frankly, what he could do if he wanted to do. 
There's a third way that Scripture uses the fear of the Lord, and that is of terror or dread. You see, when, when God is truly seen, either in person or in his word, and when he is properly understood, he always inspires terror in human beings. Sometimes this happens unintentionally. God shows up in a theophany, in a visible appearance. And what happens? People are terrified. Even believers are terrified. I I shared a number of examples with you just a few minutes ago. Let me remind you of John on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation 117. He says, I saw the glorified Christ and I fell at his feet like a man in a coma, like a dead man. I couldn't move. Other times in Scripture, God intends to be terrifying. He intends to be. For example, Psalm 211, Psalm about the Messiah, says, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. When you come to worship the Messiah, God says, You can rejoice, but you also ought to tremble. Your knees ought to knock as you think about the greatness of my son. Jeremiah 5.22, God says, Do you not fear me? Do you not tremble in my presence? God says, Really? Your knees aren't knocking when you come into my presence? Turn over to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah talks about the future day of the Lord, the future day of judgment. And three times he says sinful people should hide from the, and will hide from the terror that is God. Isaiah 2, verse 10, enter the rock and hide in the dust. Again, this is the future. This is the day of the Lord, God's day when he comes in judgment on the earth. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled. Every proud person will be humbled to the dust and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For Yahweh of armies will have his day. He's going to have his day. And notice again in verse 19 how fallen sinful man will respond. Men will go into the caves of the rocks and into the holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord. They'll run like rats into holes in the earth to hide from the splendor and the majesty and the terrifying presence of God. When he arises to make the earth tremble, verse 21 Again, they'll go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. In light of that, stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? Listen, you want to know who to, who to be afraid of, God says? Don't be afraid of man. Be afraid of me. The Lord, and only the Lord, is truly terrifying. So those are the three senses or the three ways in which the fear of God is used in Scripture. It's used of true believers and true worship. It's used of reverence and awe, being carried away with wonder in the presence of of the greatness of God and of terror and dread. Now, in the New Testament, there is only one primary word for fear. 
Greek word for fear. It's the word phobos, from which we get our English word phobia. That's the word used in Romans 3.18. Because there's only one word, it's hard in any context to know exactly which of these senses is being used. However, in the psalm Paul quotes, Psalm 36.1, the psalmist uses a Hebrew word that only means one thing, terror and dread. So David, and therefore Paul, was not intending to say that sinners fail to respect God, they fail to respond to God with awe, though that's true. Instead, Paul and David are both saying sinners don't even respond to God with terror or dread. Fallen man has no terror at the thought of God. Now think about that. That is ridiculous when you think about it. I mean, think about all the things people are afraid of. Think of what you're afraid of. You know, afraid of what might happen, some financial crisis, afraid of ISIS, afraid of, afraid of cancer, afraid of an accident, afraid of death, and yet no fear of God? The unbeliever has no sense in his rebellion that he should live every moment of his life in sheer terror of God. Instead, Paul says, there is no fear of God before his eyes. No terror at the thought of God. Why is that? Why are all sinners without fear of God? Well, Scripture tells us there are several reasons. Let me give them to you very briefly. Unbelievers do not fear God in any of these three senses for several reasons. Number one, they have no understanding of God's revelation. Ultimately, all true knowledge of the fear of the Lord comes through the Scripture. Deuteronomy 4.10 God says to Moses, assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me. God says, when they hear me speak, when they hear my words, they'll learn to fear me. Psalm 19 verse 9 even uses the fear of the Lord as a synonym for the scripture itself. Psalm 86 11 The psalmist writes, teach me your way, O God, and when you do, unite my heart to fear your name. I'll learn to fear you when you teach me your word. Because unbelievers don't understand God's revelation, they have no fear of God. There's a second reason they don't fear God. It's that they have no sense of God's greatness. We live in a day, sadly, when advertisers have completely destroyed the English language, when Breakfast cereal is great. It's ridiculous. Even the dictionary has an informal definition of the word great that means satisfactory. The real definition of great is unusually large in size and dimensions, unusual in degree, power, intensity, wonderful, notable, remarkable, exceptional, outstanding. Folks, by that definition, only God is great. And everything about God is great. His character, his word, his works, his ability, they're all great. And because of that, men fear him when they understand that. Turn to Job 37. Elihu is speaking. And in Job 37, he says something remarkable about God and our response to God. Verse 21, he he uses the sun as an illustration. He says, now men do not see the light which is bright in the skies, but the wind has passed and cleared them. 
out of the north, again, now he's talking about the sun and its, and its splendor. Out of the north comes golden splendor. Around God is awesome majesty. He's making a comparison. He's saying, look, if you go outside at noon and you try to look at the sun, you can't do it. You're overwhelmed by the, the glory, the splendor of the sun. He says, imagine, if it's true of the sun, what it would be like if you really saw God. The Almighty, verse 23, we cannot find him. He's exalted in power. Verse 24, because of that greatness, therefore men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise of heart. From an understanding of that greatness of God comes fear. By the way, if you haven't read it recently, go home and sometime this week, read Job 38 to 41, where God talks to Job and he puts his greatness on display. God says, think about this. Because fallen man lacks a true sense of the greatness of God, he fails to fear him. A third reason unbelievers do not fear God is that they have no sense of God's power. It's related to the previous one, but just a slight distinction. Listen to Exodus 14.31. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. When you get a glimpse of God's power, you fear him. I remember with my family back when I was living in Mobile, one dark night for many hours sitting in our little wood frame house watching and feeling the roof lift again and again, afraid that any moment it was going to fly off as Hurricane Camille came powering through the Gulf Coast. I can promise you this, everybody in our house and everybody who was still there feared God that night because we saw just a glimpse of his power. A fourth reason sinners do not fear God is that they have no sense of God's judgment. No sense of God's judgment. People just assume that God is not going to judge them, that he's not going to bring temporal judgment for their sin into their lives here. You know, that's not true. The truth is, God executes temporal judgments on unbelievers even during this life. I'm not just talking about future judgment, we're talking about now. Read the scriptures. There, there's example after example of unbelievers whom God brings down his temporal judgment on because of their sin, starting with Cain, by the way, and throughout the scriptures. But God also disciplines believers in this life. You know, sometimes we can think, okay, there's no judgment for me in the future. And that's true if you're in Christ. There, in the sense that you're not going to be judged for your sins. But God will deal with you now. And we ought to live in fear of that. You ought to be afraid. If you grew up in a good Christian home, you were afraid to violate the will and command of your parents because of the discipline that would come. You better fear God in the same way. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29 says about the Lord's table, he who eats and drinks in an unworthy way eats and drinks God's judgment to himself. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and some have died. 1 Peter 1.17, if you address his father, the one who impartially judges during, according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Fear of what? Fear of displeasing the Father. Fear of his discipline. 
Listen, don't you imagine for a moment that because you're a Christian, you can sin when you want to sin, and our Father isn't going to discipline you. He will conduct yourselves in fear. People also assume that God will not judge and punish their sin in the future. Jesus had a lot to say contrary to that. In fact, he had the most to say about hell of anybody in Scripture. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he says this, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. In other words, don't fear ISIS. The worst they can do is put your body to death. He says, I'll tell you who to fear. Jesus says, rather... He's talking to his disciples, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You better fear God. You're going to be terrified by somebody, let it be God. If you have refused to repent and believe in God's son, God says you should live in terror of his coming judgment. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 He's talking here about those who are attached to the church but have never truly believed and then decide to abandon the Christian faith. So these aren't real Christians. These are people who belong to Christian homes and Christian churches but never really believed and then abandoned the faith. He said, if that happens, verse 27, all you have to anticipate is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume God's enemies. He says, look, if you broke the law of Moses and two or three witnesses testified against you, you could get the capital punishment. You could get death. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve? Here's what what this is like. Trampling underfoot the Son of God. And regarding his unclean, the blood that he shed, and insulting the Spirit of grace. Don't forget, God said, vengeance is mine I will repay. And then verse 31, one of the most challenging, difficult verses in all the Bible toward those who attach to the Christian faith or those who who refuse to attach to the Christian faith. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Listen, if you're not a true believer, if you haven't really come to Christ, whether you're attached to the church or whether you're not, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. So understand then, Paul says that behind all human sin is an absence of the fear of God. If you're here this morning and you are not in Christ, let me tell you, it's because you don't really fear God. If you really understood something of the greatness of God, the power of God, the coming judgment of God, you would run to Jesus Christ. And if you're in Christ... You don't fear God the way you ought to fear God. I've had to admit that to myself this week. We don't fear God the way we should. But here's the good news, Christian. I love that Isaiah 11.3 says of Jesus the Messiah, He will delight in the fear of the Lord. In other words, He lived a perfect life of the right kind of fear of God for 33 years. And if you're in Christ, that is yours. God sees you as if you had lived your whole life in the right fear of God. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 10 of Not Even One. And that concludes our current series. But next time, Tom will bring us a new one. Join us then, won't you? 
Tom, would you share some final thoughts with us before we go? You know, Bill, I think this message today reminds us that as human beings, we are tempted to live in fear of all the wrong things. I mean, think about it. We live in a world that is saturated with fear, and yet the one we should fear the most, most people don't. We should fear our Creator. We should fear God. Jesus was clear, wasn't he, when he said, fear the one who is able to cast both body and soul into hell. Don't fear people. And yet we fear everything but God. It's just a reminder of how profoundly deep our sin goes and a reminder of how wonderful the gospel is because it reaches into our hearts and it changes us from those who fear everything but God to those who fear only God and fear him in the sense that we love him, respect him, long to please him in every way. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks, Tom. And friend, we'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.